Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Give it to me in the knowledge hole. What's a knowledge hole? <laughs> it's my brain and okay. or ears. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Stop. It's fine. Uh, so I feel like we've descended into like my dad wrote a porno where like the anatomy <laughs> is just kind of made up vaguely yeah. from recollection or right? something. Like I have a knowledge hole somewhere. Great. I sure hope my dad never listens to this episode. Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Whamlet. I really did almost steal your line again. I know. I think it's it's because I caught myself. I don't. I feel like you've been saying it a little bit more frequently than I have. Maybe. Um, maybe this season. Maybe I have. Yeah. So, but I caught myself. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just Whamlet. got carried away. We are Whamlet. We are so much Whamlet together. We are Wham. Wham. All of Whamlet. the whamming. Some of the letting, but all of the whamming. Uh, <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. This week, we're talking about Richard II. You know, the other Richard that people hated. People <laughs> did hate him i suppose some some people hated him every week we discuss a different play by our favorite guy william magenta shakespeare at what we like to call the 101 level so at the 101 level that's where you're going to get the introductory stuff which is everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and the plot and the blah da, blah da, blah plus like other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else like my super awesome wisdom and Aubrey's super awesome insight. So suck on that, listeners. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, that's a really like <laughs> aggressive way to say kind things. Yeah, I don't. Like, I don't know that I should tell our listeners to suck on that. Suck on my wisdom and insight. <laughs> um, speaking of sucking on wisdom and insight, sorry. I swear to God, this is relevant. Sort of. Yeah. So I'm in this Spanish class, right? This Spanish language exam. Right proficiency reading prep class yeah uh and for the final we have to do a translation project so i've been working on this translation for a couple of weeks um and yesterday i got to to the end and this particular bit is about romeo and juliet i gotta pull it up I, i just i gotta pull it up so the the spanish and i'm gonna probably butcher it um because this is a reading proficiency class not a speaking class so the, the Spanish is mamar de las tetas la sabiduría. Mamar, to suck. Mm-hmm. Las tetas, teat. The boobies, yeah. Uh, sabiduría, wisdom. And so I, I came up with to suck the teats of wisdom. And I was like, that uh-huh. can't be right. That can't be right. So I put it into Google Translate, which 
threw back at me sucking the tits of wisdom <laughs> and i was like yo google translate what um that's filthy yeah uh, so crazy. yeah so the the whole thing is like this section and this is this is the the section title of of this article which i ended up going with suckling at the teat of knowledge uh-huh okay so all of that to say hey listeners suck the tit of our knowledge <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I'm so if you're gonna say something that filthy you need to commit to it 100 percent, jessica <laughs> damn hamlet i'm so uncomfortable with that <laughs> So speaking of sucking on that, oh my god! Uh, so should we oh uh, do some rhetoric? Yep, yeah, it's time for the rhetorical device of the oh week. Oh god! Because we are word nerds, each week we will draw a random device <laughs> from our handy dandy ASC rhetorical device flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card, ragamuffin! Okay. Tell me when to stop. Stop. Ooh. This week, the rhetorical device is... Anna Diplosis. Oh, Anna Diplosis. is a I form don't... of repetition. It is Anna Diplosis. A N A D I P L O S I S. Anna Diplosis sounds like a virus. It is not. It is the repetition of the last word or phrase from the previous line, clause, or sentence at the beginning of the next. Repetition of endings at the beginning. For instance. Oh yeah. For instance, Richard III says, My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. So, tongue, tongue, tail, tail, villain, villain. Or just villain. <laughs> tongues and tails. <sighs> what, with my tongue in your tail? Ah, it's the best joke. So that is anadiplosis. It is the repetition of the last word or phrase at the beginning of the next one. I'm good with that. Yeah. I like I like me some anadiplosis. It I is, do too. Uh, it's very clever. It's some clever repetition. It's now time for your burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Cool. So this week uh, I want to talk about regendering versus cross-gendering in performance. Uh, what it is. Why do people do it? Is it a good idea? I have some very strong thoughts about this. Which is probably not a surprise to anyone who has listened to this podcast ever. I have strong thoughts about everything. But my thoughts are always under review. I'm always looking to make sure that I still believe in my thoughts. Anyway, okay, so regendering versus cross-gendering. So regendering is like uh, in the terrible, terrible, terrible Julie Taymor Tempest when she made Helen Mirren Prospera and changed the gender of Miranda's parent. Cross-gender casting is not like in the terrible, terrible Jubilee Tamor Tempest, where she made Helen Mirren play Prospero, and it was normal, except that Helen Mirren was a female-bodied actress playing a male role. 
that didn't happen because Julie Taymor is terrible. So that's what the difference is. And here's how I feel about it. I think it's bullshit and I think you should never do it. This is why I think it's bullshit and that you should never do it. I'll bookend this by saying I am always willing to be convinced, change my mind. So I'm always willing to be convinced. But I, I think it's bullshit because, oh God, I, I like to think I'm not precious about the text. Like the text is a lie. Nothing is real. I know this. I understand this. But if you regender pretty much any major character, it fundamentally changes the story. And it becomes not Shakespeare, but also like not not Shakespeare. Because all performances adaptation, right? Like maybe there is no true Shakespeare anymore. I don't know. This is like going down a lot of different holes all the time immediately. Stop it. Stop it with your face. I can't. It's my face. So, okay. So uh, some number of years ago, I saw a production of Hamlet that regendered both Polonius and Laertes and not cross-gender cast them, regendered the characters, which completely undermines Ophelia's track in the play, right? Because the whole thing is that she is being manipulated and what's another word for manipulated? What's the word I want? She's being maneuvered. Maneuvered. Um... Thank you. Yes. She's being maneuvered by men, right? She has no women in her life. The only woman in her life in the play is Gertrude, who she seems to have no relationship with until after she's dead. And it it changes the very nature of Ophelia's character, the other two characters. It changes that whole family, right? That like this is this is now a family of women and not mm-hmm. two dudes who know better than their daughter and younger sister, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why, I mean, that's a very um, sort of quick and dirty why I don't get down with regendering. Whereas cross-gender casting, I'm fucking fine with. Like, you're Fiona Shaw and you want to play Richard II in 1995? Yeah, fucking get it. Do it. Awesome. You're, you know, what's-her-butt gonna play Hamlet right now-ish? Awesome. Get it. Gonna be great. Oh, yeah, that Irish actress. Yeah. Whose name is escaping me? But Ruth, maybe can... Ruth Nega. Yes, yeah. I was like, I know there's an N in there. Yeah. Um. Shit. I mean, you're Kate Eastwood Norris, and you want to play the bastard? Do it. Or Hamlet, which she did or a Hamlet. couple years ago. Yeah, she's done that. Like, there are ways to open these roles, these roles written written for white men to people who are not white men. They're absolutely do that. Do it. It's fine. But if you if you regender, you're telling a different story. And I don't know that then you get to call that story Shakespeare. And that's that's a whole separate adaptation question that I go back and forth on literally every day because it's such a huge concept for my dissertation. Like I I I cannot sit here today right now and say what is and is not Shakespeare. I can't do that because I can like I I can't I can't fix Shakespeare. Sorry about it. That's not what we're doing here. So I have yes questions. Go, please uh, uh, save I wanna me from myself. Poke holes in this. So do. I would love to have holes poked in my Okay, holes. so <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I'm coming for your knowledge holes. Jess. Yes, get in there, girl. Okay. 
Yes. <laughs> this is so dumb. All right. Um, so thinking about your example, I, I want to go yeah. back to your example of, of Ophelia being changed because the people around her are changed. Yeah. Sure. Um, one, I, uh, and you know what? I know we go back and forth about Julie Taymor. I like a lot of what Julie Taymor does and like regendering what I experienced in both of those instances um, I, I haven't seen a regendered. Um, wait, yes, I have. I have seen a regendered Polonius, not Laertes, but a Polonius, and a regendered um, Prospero. Also live on stage, not just the Julie Tamer one. Sure. For me, it's a question of what is lost. Sure, mm -hmm. we we lose that interpretation of all of those characters, the original, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. right? But what also is gained, and and what I gain from seeing a female. Prospero or Prospera is a story about a mother-daughter dynamic instead of a father-daughter dynamic, which of course is different, but still a meaningful story to me, something that I still related to, something that because of her femaleness made me hear different lines in a new way or brought them to my attention at all, like it heightened different parts of the text for me. Um, I can imagine that, you know, having both a, a female Polonius, so like a Polonia and a Laertes or whatever. How'd they regender that name, by the way? I think it was just How'd Laertes. They... Oh, okay. They just kept yeah, it. I don't think they did anything um, to it. Oh, that's fine. But but like having having two women maneuver around a weaker woman, I think also says something about the nature of uh, of women doing that to other women, not just men doing it to women. So I yeah. wonder, like, it, so it it makes a different statement. It's a different um, story, I think, and that's. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure it's ent an entirely different story. Like the characters still do what they do, you know. Well, yeah, it's I mean, just yes, different it's not a... bodied people doing them, and and if we really believe that gender is a social construct anyway, then like, isn't there room for gender fluidity amongst these characters that aren't real to begin with, and like, neither is sure. gender expression. Sure, um, but so let's let's look at Tamara who does mm -hmm. despicable things sure. to Lavinia. And if if we change Tamara to Tamaro, I don't know, Tom, if we change her to Tom, like that changes her entire his entire arc in the play. Like if this is now a man orchestrating this brutal brutal rape. Mhm. Mm I it it changes the entire yeah. story, I think. The entire story. I don't know. Lavinia is still defiled. She still ends up the way she ends up, unfortunately for her, regardless of who enacted that violence on her. It, I, it, I understand what you're saying about like it creates sort of a butterfly effect for everyone else in the play. Yeah, because the moment you even propose that, the moment you even propose that, I, th I thought about, oh Jesus, you know, what is that? What does that mean if there were a, if it was a male Tamara, would the entire production be gender swapped to keep it heteronormative? Right. Or would this be a queering of Titus Andronicus altogether? And what does that mean? Sure. Um, and how does that read? And and I think for me it's less a question of how how is this one particular character changed or how is the story changed? How are we diverging from the original story so much as like how can we use regendering to make a statement about whatever? Uh, sure. And, you okay. know, I come from a very, like, political theater kind of a place. And right. so I feel like, you know, if you have something to say and the way you want to say it is by amplifying 
gender difference, mm-hmm. um, just like this measure for measure production that's happening yep. Yep. In, uh, at the Donmar Warehouse right now, yep. which I heard about firsthand yep. from my best friend, which I don't know if we ever actually brought back up. Um, but remember. she said she went and saw it and and it made her have all of those feelings of rage that you and I had, even yeah. just by like reading about it and talking about it. But she said she said it felt not good necessarily to have those feelings, but that those feelings and those reactions were brought to her attention mm-hmm. and that, and that she was given those realizations because of what they did. And it made her think and it made her uncomfortable, but yeah. in like a good way. So I think this is the crux of my issue with regendering is I've never seen it used for that reason. Like it, it always has just sort of seemed like, well, we have female actors that we have to use in these roles because we don't have another choice. So we're going to regender them because no audience will believe that this breasted person is going to be a man. Yeah. Like, and that including the Tamor Tempest, which I have heard her speak about in, in a room in which I was in and she was speaking about her reasons for regendering. Prospero. It was not a like a statement reason. It was a we have a female actress and we cannot ask our audience to suspend disbelief. Okay. Which I don't think is a reason. That's a dumb yeah. reason. And that's just cross gender casting, which is fucking fine. And people do it every goddamn day. Sure. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm with you there. Yeah. So yeah. This, totally. This, this is it for me is if you're going to regender, you have to have a clear reason that is well thought out you should maybe perhaps i don't know use a dramaturg what radical it is a radical notion to use a dramaturg to see Mm -hmm. how things might potentially read to an audience yep before you do that thing yeah so that yeah no i get that i totally get that that's a good uh i think that's a good stopping place for (laughs) this burbage break that has already spiraled into like everything else we've done so far this episode it's it's spiraled but yes regendering versus cross-gendering should you do it should you not if you're gonna do it have a fucking reason and consider every angle that was your burbage break with master master hamlet and now it's time for a game we're going to play another round of jess fails at shakespeare before we launch into our discussion our actual discussion of richard ii Jess is going to try in one minute to sum up what she can recall oh about the masterpiece that is Richard II. I have a whole minute? I'm not going to use a minute. Well, I mean, you get it anyway, so cool. you All don't right. have to use it if you don't want it, but Great. you so, get it. To preface this, listeners, I read this entire play not two months ago because it's on my comps list. I also saw the first half of this play in January question mark March maybe <laughs> earlier this year like I've it's but it's not sticking nothing stuck so here we go Richard kind of sucks for like reasons and people are like hey Richard you kind of suck um also there's like a big old fight about banishing people maybe for reasons and everybody gets their glove out and they throw their gloves but then there's never actually a fight because Richard is like ha ha I'm gonna set you up to fight but then I'm just gonna banish you 
Um, later, Richard breaks a mirror because he has feelings about his face. And then he gets murdered. I think that's about it. I think... I think that's it. I think that's the play. That's, uh, yeah, you're not wrong. But you're also not right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> All right. Yep, you fail. Fail. Uh, so we like to start every summary with a five-word unhelpful title. Mine is, Richard didn't think that through. Yeah, cool. Uh, mine yep. is... Shakespeare with mirror and gloves. Yeah, these are really unhelpful. <laughs> yeah, but I think mine's accurate. Uh, although it totally makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Like mine's accurate too. Mirror and gloves. You will see why. You will see why, listeners, why it's oh. accurate and just not helpful. Jesus, we've got a family tree. I forgot because it's a history. It's all right. It's brief. It's brief. I broke it down. Also, we have the benefit of other episodes in which I do it more in depth family tree. So, uh, so we're going to give you a brief recap of the family tree and where Richard two is situated in this clusterfuck of a Royal family. So (laughs) here's a brief recap. Richard the second is a direct descendant of King John via a Henry and several Edwards. They are all still Plantagenets. Um, which, incidentally, fun fact, I learned this from the prologue thing at the Folgers production of King John. Plantagenet, the name, derives from these little yellow flowers called plantagenista, or commonly known as broom cod, um, that this family used as their sigil. And it was native of Anjou in France. Who knew? Not me. That was like the one thing I learned that was brand new information in the prologue there. Cool. Yeah, kind of cool. So anyway. Um, So to break it down a little bit better, Edward the Black Prince, who you've probably heard referred to as Edward the Black Prince, which sounds a lot more ominous than it was. He wasn't like a scary broody guy. He was he just like wore black armor and like did stuff. Edward the Black Prince was Richard II's dad, but he died before ever becoming king. Therefore, Richard was rightfully next in line because primogeniture is still a thing. That is the first son of the first son, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down the line. So Richard being the grandson of the last king, the first son, firstborn son of the first son. There you go. In this play, you also meet the notorious John of Gaunt that we've been mentioning for like a year now in other episodes. Um, he yeah. is the if you yeah, if you remember, he is the future Lancaster family line. He's the start of that line, and so you get to meet him in this play instead of just hearing people talk about him. He is Richard's uncle. He is Edward the Third's second son okay his son is henry bolingbroke or as they call him in this play bolingbroke also known as henry the fourth by the end of this play he so he is the henry bolingbroke is the first son of the second son of edward the third so he definitely violates the laws of primogeniture by ousting richard okay and that is essentially what happens in this play um however richard and his queen isabella of valois are childless and Richard does name Henry as his heir um, by the end of the play although probably under some duress because like he was in prison and stuff yep so like that's kind of sketchy even though he did do it legally third person you meet on this family line who becomes important later or whose line is becomes important later um, you meet Edmund the Duke of York 
And he is the ancestor of all of those Yorks in the Henry VI plays. Um, but this is way back when the Lancaster brother, a.k.a. John of Gaunt, and the York brother, a.k.a. Edmund, Duke of York, still like and trust each other. So that is where we're at. It's all still, I mean, they're all still like a backbiting family, but at least they're all still one family instead of two right now. Cool. Which will shortly change. So that is that is where we are in the family tree. Okay. Moving on to some dramatis personae, but only the really important ones. Um, first and foremost, obviously, would be Richard II, King of England. John of Gaunt is next. He's the Duke of Lancaster and also uh, Richard's uncle. Next, we have Henry Bolingbroke. Later, uh, sorry, he's John's son, John of Gaunt's son. He will later become Henry, uh, King Henry IV by the end of this play. There's also Thomas Mowbray, who's the Duke of Norfolk, who isn't actually that important, except that his uh, beef with Bolingbroke sort of jumpstarts the play. So we got to mention him. Yeah, he kind of dies in the middle. Nobody nobody cares about Mowbray. Nobody anyway, cares about Mowbray. Nobody. Uh, then there's Edmund, Duke of York, John of Gaunt's brother. He's called York in this play. There's Omerle, who is York's son, and he is loyal to Richard. Then there's Northumberland, a nobleman who hates Richard and is loyal to Bolingbroke, a.k.a. Hotspur's dad in the next play. There's also um, the Queen and the Duchess of York, who are two of only five women in the whole play, if we're counting servants, uh, who appear a couple of times and they get talked at, but they don't do a whole lot. So. Yeah, they don't do a whole lot, but I had to mention them in the DP because we briefly mentioned them in our summary. That's real. So, like, not to keep um, you confused. but So, hey, Aubrey, why is this play so goddamn popular? It's not. It's not. But it's got some really good shit that, like, every time I do see it, like, I always go in sort of uninterested, like, Richard II. And I come out of it and I'm always like, damn, that was, that was some damn fine poetry. So, um, there are so many famous, well-known, beautifully written speeches in this play that you didn't know you knew, but like they're embedded in Western culture. Things like this realm, this earth, mm. this England, right? Yeah, I, mean, I always England. forget that's this play. I always yeah. think it's King John because John of Gaunt, but right. nah, it's not King it's, John. It's this one. It's just John of Gaunt that says it. So you're right yep. there. Yep. Um, and then, you know, then there's uh, Richard, for God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, you know, yeah. that speech. And then there's this um, Uneasy Lies the Head. Is that this? Part? No, that is oh. Henry the Fourth, part two. Oh, JK. Yeah. Although same I mean, world, same world, same people. Um, yeah. And his crown definitely lies uneasy on him by that point because he's racked with guilt out of what he did. But um well not he dies enough too, to like give so. up but yeah you know he, they all die he gets um his. yeah yeah so so there there are beautiful speeches in this play that are super famous that like you know i i've wasted time and now doth time waste me mm, like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know all of these these come from richard too so so you should know this play it should be more done i think it's still timely it features a a weak uh, in a way, but but arrogant and extravagant ruler who's completely out of touch with everyone, with all of his people. Wait, why um, is that relevant? I don't know. I just have a hunch. Weird. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, Richard, He he's like on his little ivory tower. He is very much convinced that he is, you know, endowed by God to be king. And he is part of a line of of godly kings and it's his absolute right and no one gets to fuck with that and all of a sudden he's deposed like that's and 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 he's deposed because he's so out of touch 
and he just can't get people to like him because he's a jerk. <laughs> um, and and it's a jerk a jerkdom that he's born to. You know what I mean? So I, it's not done a lot. This play, uh, I think it should be, or maybe not. Maybe the world doesn't need like a ton of Richard too. But like, if you can get yourself over anywhere to see a production of Richard too, I think it definitely is a play worth seeing um, and hearing with. 2018 ears and seeing with 2018 eyes that's what i think that's my story and i'm sticking to it okay well uh it's summertime so uh we will now summarize for you richard ii in a segment that this week we're calling this blessed plot this earth this realm this summary get it this blessed plot Oh my god! <laughs> I didn't get it. I'm glad you passed it. Antenna classes, baby. You're amazing. Every <laughs> goddamn Whitlock, ladies and gentlemen. Mic drop. Show's over. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs> Thank you, folks. I'll be here all week. Don't forget to tip your waitress generously. That's amazing. You're <laughs> amazing. Good, right? Yeah, that's good. Really good. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've got a stopwatch. Yep. And I'm ready to get the let out. Are you ready to get the let out? Yeah. Here we go. Go. Okay. Uh, In act one, Mowbray and Bolingbroke accuse each other of stuff. King Richard forces Mowbray and Bolingbroke to shake hands instead of dueling like they want to, which both of them are like, "Mm, brah, no, I'm not okay with this. Uh, On top of that, Richard exiles both of them instead, because that is what you do when your courtiers are dueling, whatever. John of Gaunt is old and he knows that he will never see his son again. Remember, his son is... Bolingbroke. Richard plans an invasion of Ireland and then he learns that John of Gaunt is dying so instead of being sad, Richard is like real happy with the news because he thinks it means that he will acquire all of Gaunt's wealth. Mm -hmm. In Act 2, John of Gaunt has a final conversation with his brother, the Duke of York. He makes a famous, very patriotic speech about this England and where he thinks it's headed in the future. Richard crashes the solemnity with his entire court at uh, John of Gaunt's house and announces that he will seize all of Gaunt's land and titles when he dies. Gaunt is then led out of the room to die. Uh, York protests that this would rob Bolingbroke of his inheritance, but Richard gives no fucks. Richard names uh, York regent of England while he's in Ireland and leaves about as suddenly as he appears. Uh, The people left behind complain of Richard's tyranny and Northumberland tells everyone that Bolingbroke is planning to secretly return to England with an army. And then Bolingbroke does come back and York and some other guys flee with the queen and more lords join Bolingbroke's rebellion, including maybe York, but he kind of waffles about it. In Act 3, Bolingbroke executes some guys who sided with Richard because, duh. Richard returns from Ireland thinking that everything's cool and then he gets a ton of bad news dumped on him while he's still on the harsh in his buzz. Uh, the Welsh deserted him. His allies are being executed. The whole country is rising against him. York quick waffling and has joined the rebels. Richard pouts and then gives a very famous speech about sitting on the ground and telling sad stories about the death of kings. Meanwhile, Bolingbroke insists that his rebellion is only to reclaim his inheritance, but York suspects that he actually wants the throne. Richard takes refuge in Flint Castle until Bolingbroke has him surrounded, and then he surrenders. In Act 4, Bolingbroke finds himself, ironically, in the same position Richard was in at the top of the play. 
That is, he has to stop a bunch of his lords from dueling each other about old grievances. And he settles it in roughly the same way that Richard does. Hmm. York announces that Richard, who is childless, has named Bolingbroke his heir and has resigned the throne. Yay for Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke accepts this because that's low-key what he wanted the whole time. And he wants Richard to abdicate publicly. Richard cannot bring himself to do it. Um, He's too proud. He can't do it. And instead, he asks his jailers for a mirror to see whether his change in social status is visible on his face. For reasons. Then he's sent to the tower. O'Merle, already accused of treason and murder, along with some other lords, now begins to plot against Bullingbrook. Oh, how the tables have turned. Oh, to sum up, the Queen and Richard have an emotional goodbye. Northumberland, who is always the bearer of bad news, interrupts them to say that Richard will be on house arrest in Pomfret rather than the tower, and the Queen will be sent to France. York discovers his son O'Merle's plotting, and he leaves to tell Bolingbroke, now King Henry, knowing that O'Merle could be executed. O'Merle appears before Henry, about to confess his treason. York shows up to tattle on his son. York's wife appears to plead for mercy for O'Merle. It's a York family clusterfuck! Yay! Henry banishes him and executes everyone else implicated. Henry is low-key ordered the assassination of Richard before he can change his mind about abdicating again. Meanwhile, Richard laments a lot in his confinement, and then he gets murdered. Super great. When Richard's body is brought before Henry, he realizes that this might actually have been a bad beginning for his reign. Duh. Then he talks about going on a crusade to the Holy Land to cleanse himself of his guilt. Womp womp. The end. End of play. Four minutes, babe. Right on. I'm getting better at this. I told you. Ah, you're crushing it. (laughs) Crushing it. Yeah. Womp womp. I just... The ending of this play is so frustrating. So fucking frustrating. Anyway, tell us some cool stuff about this text, Jess. Yeah. All right. So I got I got two things for you this week. One, because I was like, I don't know what fuck to, to talk about for this play. And then I was like, oh, shit. So the first thing is genre. In 1597, the quarto of this play is titled The Tragedy of Richard II. But the folio retitled it The Life and Death of King Richard II, and he positioned it right before Henry IV and Henry V, so we have the folio to thank for the tetralogy and its classification as a history. Why do you sound like an NPR radio host all of a sudden? <laughs> because, I don't know, that was like my boring thing about <laughs> good, this play. Good times. Good times. Yeah. Yeah, I good mean, times. I think it's, it's I, I'm, I'm actually really interested in the, the generic classification of this play, but yeah. It's not as exciting as what's coming next. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, okay. But like, buckle up. But like the genre thing, right? Like that's weird and interesting, right? Like, it is, is it totally. a tragedy? Is it a history? What is it? What is yeah. this play? I don't yes, know. It's that's good a, times. But like, maybe that's a two hundred one episode. Okay, but for real, y'all, buckle up, cause we about to go on a motherfucking rebellion. So, this is the story of the Essex Rebellion. Ooh, yay. I love this story. Yeah. Also, you should tell it around the campfire. Right? Uh, this is <laughs> question mark the introduction to my dissertation. So, Ooh, nice. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Okay. okay. So in 1599, Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex, bungled the suppression of a rebellion in Ireland. And Queen Elizabeth got real damn mad at him. She was so mad, in fact, that she expressly forbade him from coming home to England. And he was like, nah, bitch, I'm coming home. So he came home, which was a bad idea. 
Uh, and then he was under house arrest for like a year. And he spent a lot of that time writing like really submissive letters to the queen because he was like, I don't want to be under house arrest. Please. I'm sorry. Wah, wah. In 1600, she released him from house arrest, but she wouldn't let him come back to court. And he was like, uh, I would like to come back to court. So he spent some more time writing some more submissive letters. At the end of that year, the end of 1600, like November-ish, Queen Elizabeth decided not to renew Robert Devereux's government-granted monopoly on the importation of sweet wines, and that plunged him into financial ruin, and he was unhappy about that. So obviously he began plotting, because that's what you do when you're a man, and oh, you dang. Think a woman has wronged you. So he, he, he begins plotting, not to overthrow her rule, but to storm court and force her to listen to his case in private away from her advisors. Like, this is sort of the crux of everything for this rebellion, is that, like, he's not trying to take the throne for himself. He just wants a fair hearing and thinks he's not going to get that because Robert Cecil is all up in Elizabeth's ear being like, fuck this dude, fuck this dude in particular, fuck him all the way up. That is apparently what Robert Cecil sounds like. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. Okay. 10 out of 10 can verify. So he's he starts plotting this. This is a plan that has no downside. None at all. It cannot possibly go wrong. Right? Solid plan. So on February 3rd, 1601, five rebellion leaders gathered at the London residence of the Earl of Southampton to discuss plans for taking control of the government. Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex, was not there. Because uh, he was trying to avoid suspicion, which totally worked and didn't at all result in his arrest and imprisonment. Not even a little bit. So their overall goal for the rebellion was just to force Elizabeth to change her government leaders, particularly Robert Cecil, right? So Essex is like, I would like a fair hearing. And then more people get involved. And they're like, you know what, let's just get rid of Robert Cecil entirely. So a couple of days later, after February 3rd, some of the conspirators went to the Globe, the Globe Theater, to hire the Lord Chamberlain's men, which is Shakespeare's company. They met with a dude called Augustine Phillips, who was an actor and also the company manager, and they hired the Lord Chamberlain's men to perform Richard II with the deposition scene included. This is a huge fucking deal because if you put on stage a representation of a monarch being deposed you run the risk of people thinking that you want to depose your monarch this is a big deal okay so the the deposition scene does not appear in any print copy of this play during elizabeth's lifetime Full stop. It is not included until the folio. And to be clear, that's the scene, folks, where Richard appears, uh, you know, on top at the top of Flint Castle, looking down at right. everyone. What must the king do now? Must he be deposed? The king shall do it. That's that famous speech. Yeah. Just to give a little context. Okay. So uh, the conspirators gave the Lord Chamberlain's men the modern equivalent of about 400 pounds above their regular rate to do the performance, which is why they agreed to it. Because like, oh, that's a lot of money. Then the performance happened, and then the Privy Council summoned Essex to the palace. Essex, 
immediately lost the element of surprise because the Privy Council wanted him there. And he decided instead to rally the citizens of London to his cause, uh, which could not possibly go wrong. He did not go to the palace because he was like, I will be arrested and or assassinated, so I'm not going to go. And instead, I'm going to get the citizens to rise up. So on the morning of February the 8th, 1601, four messengers came to the Essex residence in the name of the queen. Essex locked them in a room in his house because that's a totally logical response that will have no downside. No way this can backfire. Gonna be great. He held them hostage while he and his followers marched through London. Only a couple hundred people joined him and that was pretty much the end of that, especially once the government told the Lord Mayor of London that Essex was a traitor. Meanwhile, his hostages have escaped from his home Essex goes back home to burn incriminating evidence. That evening, his house is stormed and he was arrested along with several others. There is anecdotal evidence that is probably apocryphal, but it's so worth repeating that Elizabeth was not amused by any of this. And she's supposed to have said, I am Richard too. Know ye not that. The queen is not amused with your antics. So... Maybe surprisingly for him, Shakespeare was not incriminated in the uprising, nor were many, if any, of his company. They were, in fact, invited to perform at court the night before Essex's execution, which is stone fucking cold. Wasn't that just kick you in the crotch, spit on your neck, fantastic? Uh Uh-huh. Damn. Um, There's also some evidence that the play that they performed at court that night was Richard II without the deposition scene. Uh, but that's mostly legend, question mark. That is savage, though, yeah. if it were real. Right? Oh, that's fucking savage. And then uh, Essex was beheaded the next morning. This is so. why I love her. This is why I worship and adore <laughs> Queen Elizabeth I. Yeah. She was a bad bitch, y'all. She did not suffer fools. Mm-hmm. Um. So if you're interested in learning more about the Essex Rebellion, it's easily... There's information out there, but there's uh, a pretty good and recent uh, article on Slate about this whole thing that we can throw up on the website. It is uh, an accompaniment to their Shakespeare podcast. So check it out, I suppose. Well, that's right. Slate has a Shakespeare mm-hmm. podcast now, yeah. too. It's I've on, heard it's very good. It's specifically on Shakespeare and politics. It's called Lend Me Your Years. Awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Which I like on the one hand I love. And on the other hand, I'm like, you are stealing my dissertation. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah. Through history. I love that. So from a production perspective, um, my first thought always about Richard II is OMG verse out your butt. (laughs) That basically translates out of Aubrey's speech into this play is 100% in verse. And I mean 100%. Servants talk in verse. All members of every part of the social strata speak in verse. There's no differentiation at all in this play. It is all in verse. Much of it rhyming, uh, although uh, the roughly, you know, the rest of it blank verse. Um, but lots of it is rhyming. And, and it's really complex, and rhetorically complex and beautiful verse at that. So, you know, if you're looking to teach rhetoric and go really deep into the subtlety and the nuances of verse and rhetoric 
Richard II is your play. This is the play I would use 10 out of 10 times um, for amazing examples of, of beautiful, beautiful verse construction uh, and meter and rhetoric. Um, that sounds really dry unless you're super into this, but go with me here. So there's that. That is always my first impression of Richard's, uh, Richard II. Also, I th I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is the only play of Shakespeare's plays that is 100% in verse. Uh, I would need to verify that, but I, I'm like 99% sure that this is the only one. So anyway, going back to what Jess talked about with regendering, I always think about when, when you've got plays that feature a quote unquote weak king, a king that is deposed like Richard or Henry VI, I have noticed recently, just in my own, uh, you know, anecdotally in my own production experience, I have noticed that it's not, uh, you know, regendering of kings or cross-gender casting of kings does not tend to happen with the winners and with the strong kings. It tends to only happen with the weak kings. And by that, I mean, if if cross-gendering does happen, it tends to happen like, oh, let's cast a woman as Henry VI. Let's cast a woman as Richard II. And that's cool, just like on an equal opportunity basis. Like, yeah, sure. Let's have women, let's have female-bodied people playing these roles that are traditionally reserved for men only. That's great. However, um, it's not maybe not as progressive as you think to only cast the weak kings with female bodied actors. So think about how that reads. Just like take a moment and think about that and what you're saying uh, sort of inherently about um, why it's okay to to cross gender a character like Richard and not a character like Henry V necessarily. Um, and I'm not saying that this is like a golden rule. I'm just saying it's a tendency I have noticed and I'm not sure I'm down with it. So think about it, directors. Speaking of Richard, Richard as a character is an arrogant motherfucker and it's really hard <laughs> to like him. It's really difficult to like him and it's difficult to pity him. And I guess it really depends on the production. Um, it depends very much on the actor uh, and the production, whether or not I feel anything for Richard by the end. Because a lot of it is like uh, how I used to feel about Lear, which is like, you brought this on yourself, dude. Also remember that you're not meant to really sympathize with Richard too much because this is this is Tudor propaganda. That every, every history play that Shakespeare wrote is in some way Tudor propaganda. So of course, you know, you're, you know, maybe meant to side more with Bolingbroke because it's his line that ultimately finishes out this tetralogy and leads into the next one. Uh, but then, you know, again, it depends on the production. So some, some lean very hard into sympathizing with Richard and really showing how he's been wronged and others show it the other way around where Henry is, Henry is the wronged party and he's taking what he thinks is rightfully his. And, Oh, it just also happens that he also gets the throne somehow rather than just his uh, inheritance from his dad. So I guess it really depends. I know it's sticky to say what you're meant to feel because uh, you can't really say that. But I'm warning you that it's hard to like Richard. It's also equally hard to to like Henry, although I don't want to say you're supposed to root for him. But I kind of feel like back in Shakespeare's day, you kind of are a little bit supposed to root for him because his his line is like the founding line way back for the Tudors. So there's a little bit of that living there. I just don't want to say you have to feel this way. Um, so moving on there. 
there's a really fun little Easter egg for people like me who love these history plays and who have a, a, a bit of a thing for Hal. Um, there's a really fun Easter egg at the end of this play when King Henry, he's now King Henry IV, asks sort of offhandedly, has anyone seen my son? I hear I hear disreputable things about my son and how he's a layabout and a no good horse and, well, not a horse, but he's whoring around London. What's going on? Where's my boy? And it's meant to be like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, a a say no more to lead you into the next play, which this play does really, really well. The ending, as frustrating as it is all by itself, like if this play were uh, standing alone, it's a bit of a frustrating ending because it is kind of like, you know, Henry goes, I will go on crusade because I want to distract the people from what I just did to their rightful king. But it, it really does if it if it moves straight into Henry IV, it's almost like no time has passed because we pick up one Henry IV with Henry IV being like, so shaken as we are, so wan with care, I will go to Israel. <laughs> Do you like my paraphrasing there? I think it's really good. Yep. Um, <laughs> Crushing but, it. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but that's essentially what he does. He starts out one Henry four being like, um, that crusade I said I was going to go on. Like, let's do that. Also, where's my layabout no good son? And blur, 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 blur. So you don't even need to do, you know, some of the clever things that directors try to do with other parts of this series now where it's like, oh, let's take the very ending of Henry the Sixth Part Three and put it at the top of Richard Three instead of blur, blur, blur. You don't need to do that um, between Richard Two and One Henry Four because it's written in it for you. Thanks, Shakespeare. And that's what I got. It's got great verse. It's got unlikable but also likable characters it's got a really fun little historical lots of little historical easter eggs but that one in particular is my favorite and uh and that's that that's what i got cool you're welcome good talk yeah good times good All times right. i'm put on my npr voice now <laughs> so it's uh shakes bubble gossip time and my first little bit of gossip is not necessarily shakespeare related but stanley died you know Stan Lee. He's the big, beautiful brain behind much of the Marvel Universe. And again, it's not Shakespeare related. However, he did inspire like Easter egg bloopers at the end of credits. And he is definitely the reason that we have Easter egg bloopers at the end of our credits at the end of every episode. So I just wanted to acknowledge, you know, a great light has gone out and it makes me sad. That's so, real. That's, that's all. Real. Excelsior. Yeah. My next little bit of business is um, I just read about a very cool sounding adaptation of Twelfth Night called Illyria. And now this, <laughs> you, if you have been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll know how I felt about a certain production of Twelfth Night that I saw a while ago, <laughs> which ended up with, yep. uh, with en which ended up with Viola being both Viola and Sebastian and like trotting off into the sunset with both Olivia and Orsino in like a triad. Um, which to me was strange. But it sounds like this adaptation actually does that the right way and doesn't like fuck it up with weird technology getting in the way and, and other stuff that wasn't right. So this is called Illyria. It features a main character named Cesario played by Ezra Tozian. They are a non-binary, genderqueer, trans actor uh, playing this part and they wrote and I'll put the link on our uh, landing page for this episode they they wrote just a really cool article about what it's like to be in this role and to be the love interest in this adaptation so the idea behind Illyria or what you will is uh, I'll just quote here 
from the editor's note, in Avant Bard's production of Illyria, or What You Will, freely adapted from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night by Janelle Walker and Mitchell Hebert, the character of Cesario, who falls in love with Orsino and is loved by Olivia, was reimagined as non-binary. Here, Ezra Tozian, the non-binary actor who plays Cesario, shares their very personal feelings about the experience. And yeah, and they just had really interesting things to say about the really the political statement of what it means uh, to be in this role being loved. And I just want to quote them here. This really, this really stuck out to me. So here we go. And here I am, fat body and all, gender queer, non-binary, trans body and all, up on that stage, being loved for who I am with no conditions attached. I'm not fetishized. I'm not promised love once I lose 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 50 pounds. Nothing's wrong with my loves for finding me attractive and wanting to be with me as is. There are no sidelong glances of pity for anyone involved. It's revolutionary for me to be in a space like that. It's vital that audiences see bodies like mine in a space like that. That is how you start to change minds. So I really loved that. I love um, that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Illyria or What You Will, presented by Avant Bard, plays through November 18. Damn it. Well, it just well, closed. Sorry, folks. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I wish I'd heard about it sooner. But anyway, it sounded like uh, an amazing production and a revolutionary production and a radical production adapted from Twelfth Night. So that's how you do that shit, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Okay, I'm done. Sorry. That's how it's done. Moving on. If you are not new to our podcast, you have heard <laughs> us talk about Paul Menzer. Uh, mm -hmm. We love him and we talk about him frequently. Mm -hmm. Also, he taught us. So like our brains are his responsibility or yep. I guess that's how it works. If you don't like our brains, write to Paul Menzer. Yep. Care of Mary Baldwin University Shakespeare and Performance Program, yep. Stanton, Virginia. <laughs> it's all his fault. Send him the hate mail. Singularly um, his don't fault. Don't send him hate mail. He's a wonderful, wonderful human. Anyway, he edited a new edition of Dr. Faustus. It's with the, the New Mermaids, which is a, an imprint of Arden. Um, and it's out. It's out this week. Uh, you should get it. It's got a cool cover. And it's the New Mermaids are great easy performance edition so if you need to teach it get it just get mm -hmm. it just get it get it even if you don't need to teach it get this book buy it yeah. love it get it in your library get it in your classroom get it in your backpack read Word. it love it learn about dr faustus it's it's wicked uh, see what i did there. Uh, see what you did there i mean paul menzer is the Marlowe guy um, first of all, everybody take a moment to appreciate the irony of a Marlowe guy running a Shakespeare and performance program, because I know he certainly does. <laughs> but so like, you know, reading his introduction in in this book would probably be really illuminating. He knows what he's talking about. And also anything he writes is a delightful read. So it's enjoy so that. True. Yeah. So go that out man, and get that. He can turn a phrase. Sure can. Always delightful. So yep. if you're looking for a new edition of Faustus for your reasons, get that one. It's a good yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, confidential to Charlie, get this. Oh. He knows who he is and he knows what that means. Got it. And he knows okay. why. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, brief exciting news. We're on tune in now, everybody. Woohoo! That means that in addition to uh, a 
Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on TuneIn, which means that you can ask your Alexa device to play us now, and she definitely will because technology. So anyway, that's all of my gossip. I had a lot of gossip this week. All righty. Well, now it's me. I'm up. I got a couple things. Okay, so first of all, your girl had to sit through the Fassbender Macbeth a couple weeks ago. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. And she is furious. Yeah, it's not great. It's so, it's offensively bad. I tweeted afterwards. I, like, I think it might be the worst adaptation of a Shakespeare play out there. It's awful. It's Worse than so... that Cymbeline we heard about, though? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was bad. There were lots of long pauses. So here's the thing, is that, like, of all of the things, of the very many, many things, like, I should not be able to count to 23 between words. Not between lines, but between words. Damn. Okay? Tomorrow. And six years later. Tomorrow. And seven years later. And tomorrow. Shut the fuck up and get the lead out, Michael Fassbender. Good fucking God. And it was just the whole thing. It was so whispery, which I knew it was going to be. Like, nothing was above a whisper except for the weird battle cries and, like, occasional shouting with ghosts and bullshit. It was bad. It's so bad, you guys. Like, it's so bad. And this episode is already so long. And I know that I don't, like... Well, I'll save I'll save the the debrief for like if we do a Macbeth not with but when we do a Macbeth 301 maybe that's where all this rage needs to go but if you're yeah. considering watching the Michael Fassbender Macbeth fucking don't well yeah and uh for more about Jess's rage on the Fassbender Macbeth um Fassbender et Cotillard Macbeth someday listen to the Macbeth 201 or 301 that we will talk about we've already done a 201 for Macbeth, we did. Yeah, I know. It was a surprise to me, too. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, because I, I talked about how it's not fucking cursed. Oh, right. Yeah. That was in the 201. Yep. Oh, I conflated the, them in my head. That's why. Cool. Let's let's dick bracket and get the fuck out of here. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. Take it away. All right. So uh, last week, we talked about Edmund versus mm-hmm. the Brothers Malfi. Um, landslide. Landslide. Brothers Malfi moving forward. Like yeah. actual landslide. It was it was like 80-20. Wow. So people people feel strongly on this one, which like I do not disagree. So that's yeah. that's where we're going. They're they're moving yeah. on in the matchup. I mean, I'm okay with that. Yeah, me uh, too. yeah I get yeah, that. I'm fine. They are kind of psychotic, those they're brothers. Horrific. They murder their sister. Edmund never quite gets his hands dirty, if I remember correctly. He doesn't, like, murder anyone with his bare hands. He just uh, orchestrates a lot yeah, of death. Yeah, I think you're right. So he tries. He does yeah. try. He tries to get his brother killed. And I mean, he's work. definitely a dick. And he's oh, definitely, sure. like, one of the biggest dicks in that play, if not the yeah. biggest dick in that play. But yeah. 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 But rough. compared to these these guys in, in Malfi. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. So this week, we're going to talk about Antiochus, you remember him. He's the incesty dad at the top of Pericles. Um, that sounded weird. At the top of the <laughs> at the beginning of the play. <laughs> anyway, who like put out a weird riddle about how he's sleeping with his daughter and then like kills everyone who figures it out. Um and and you know, pursues Pericles all around the world trying to kill him for what he knows. 
that guy, Antiochus, versus uh, the Revengers Tragedies Duke, who does things that I don't remember. Oh, yeah. So he, before the play starts, murders a girl. Right. She, right, right, right. That's this guy. She doesn't with them. Yeah. And then protects rapists. He protects rapists. Right. He, he wants to rape, yeah. and he protects rapists, and he tries to get all yeah. of gone. It's gross. He's gross. Yeah. So what we have, I feel like, are are maybe two sides of the same coin this week. Yeah. Antiochus, who's doing the raping of his daughter and trying to murder, versus mm-hmm. the Duke, who has done the murder and is trying to do or help others do the raping. Yeah. Yeah. This, I feel like they are is, mirror uh, images of each other. Yeah, this is a close one. I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed and entertained than when you started. (laughs) Because we are silly. I hope your knowledge hole is filled now and not a void. Yeah. That's what I hope. Thanks for suckling at the the teats of our wisdom. <laughs> anyway, uh, tune in next week for my least favorite play in the canon. Oh no! Trials and Cressida 101. But it's okay because we got a special guest expert for that one. Y'all are gonna love it. Yep. Um, can we can we say that this is our first repeat guest? Is that a thing we're allowed to say? I think we can say that. All Absolutely. Right. She's um, back to help us out because we really need her this time. Yes, we do. Real it's- bad. It's a repeat. You know her. You love her. We ain't gonna say who she is. Yeah. But uh, might not be hard to figure out. <laughs> also, next week's episode will be our last one until January because reasons. <laughs> um, but don't it's called worry. taking a break, y'all. It's, taking yeah, a break. We we need a break. We're you know we're gonna be back in January. We'll use winter break to drop a few extras on you just in time for the holidays. And we've got a good lineup for uh, the new year. And by good, she means terrible. But you guys, it'll be good. It's so bad, it's good. The January of shitty plays. And I'm really excited about it. Winter is coming. Buckle up for some terrible, terrible plays that we're going to power through. It's going to be amazing. Going to be great. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or follow us on Instagram at HurlyBurlyShakes. Or on Twitter at HurlyBurlyShake. The Hurlyburly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at JonathanShu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. I wasted time and now doth time waste me. Whamlet out! Six, six packs in a pink Cadillac. $7,000 in a sack in the bag. It cost 35 I don't aim to use back. I got no bullets, just a wheel to buy. Maybe, you know, let's just say it in Spanish. Everything sounds better in Spanish. <laughs> Mamar de las tetas la sabaduria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which roughly translate to suck on the titties of my knowledge. Oh, welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. I love this. I love this so much. Today is the best day.